Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. They somehow cobbled together two consecutive continuing resolutions. Now members of Congress aren't sure what will happen when the current one expires. At least one Democrat in leadership predicts a shutdown next month. More now from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And yes, nothing seems to be able to escape the drumbeat of shutdown, does it? (laughs) No, it doesn't. You would think by the end of this year, we wouldn't necessarily have to be talking about a shutdown since they already have a continuing resolution in place. But as you pointed out, we have these deadlines coming up in January. And I talked at length with former House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, who's been through many of these shutdown showdowns over the years. And he is very concerned about the possibility of a shutdown in January. I think there's more than a potential. I think it may be more likely than less likely that we would shut down the government. Because first of all, the speaker, this brand new speaker, has said he's not going to do any more continuing resolutions. Sadly, they have set up a process which makes it very, very difficult to reach consensus in such a short time. And Hoyer is pointing out that the House is not scheduled to return until January 9th. The first of two deadlines for funds to run out is the 19th. And he points out that with the travel and everything else, that really that only leaves them about six legislative days to get to an agreement. And if a short-term spending bill is off the table, that could present real problems. Keep in mind that the House hasn't been able to agree on most of the appropriation bills for nearly a year, much less a few days. Uh, then there's also a second deadline from that laddered CR as you talked about, uh, that was previously approved, and that's on February 2nd. So big challenges ahead, especially for the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, who was originally given some leeway after succeeding former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But the House Freedom Caucus and the hardliners aren't likely to give him much flexibility, I don't think, especially since their majority has shrunk with the departure of McCarthy and the expulsion of George Santos. Now you could get down to two or maybe three votes that the Republicans could lose, depending on who's absent. So it's going to be an even thinner margin in 2024, much less this year. But in this case, then the shutdown would be more the result of stasis and schedule than for actually confronting the disagreements. Right, exactly. And really, um, many people point out, and this is Democrats as well as Republicans point out, there really hasn't been any major change in the makeup or the way that House Republicans are looking at these issues. So, yes, there was a little bit of honeymoon period here for Speaker Mike Johnson, but all of these issues still are going to come back to roost in January. And I just don't see, and Steny Hoyer obviously doesn't see, and many others don't see, how they are going to resolve these issues in just a matter of days. Whatever happened to that whole gambit of trying to get the regular appropriations legislation pieces done, I think that dates back to the McCarthy speaker days. Right. That really just totally fell apart. I mean, it was amazing. We heard a drumbeat day after day where House Republicans say, we have to get these appropriations bills passed. We want to get all 12 of them passed before the end of the year. Yes. Did they pass some of them? They did. But they basically went for the low-hanging fruit, the easier ones to pass. And then when it became clear that they couldn't even get the votes to pass the rule to get to the legislation on the floor, they just kind of put them all on the 
shelf. And so it was a really odd kind of a legislative twilight zone here over the last few weeks where, you know, they're moving toward the end of the year. We're used, used to this big push and finally getting into an omnibus, which they avoided this year. But really, the last couple of weeks have been kind of anticlimactic. Other than passing the National Defense Authorization Act, there wasn't really a lot of major legislative action. And within this twilight zone, you also have lots of zombies walking around. (laughs) I mean, they did give the heave-ho to George Santos, but lots of members have already announced their departure from Congress, and there's still another year of legislation before the election. Right. Now, of course, there's always ebb and flow with members of uh, Congress leaving. But really, over the last several weeks, we've had a lot of people heading out the doors. Uh, more than 30 lawmakers from the House have either said they're retiring or they're going to another job or they're trying to run for another public office. Maybe it's the U.S. Senate or somewhere else. And I asked Steny Hoyer about that. And he said, well, yes, you do get a lot of people leaving. Obviously, he's somebody who's been here a long time. But there's just this frustration that absolutely nothing can get done. And even among the renegade conservative Republicans in the House, if you ask them, do you think this was a productive uh, legislative session? You know, usually there's a spin on it, but several of them said, no, absolutely not. They're frustrated. They didn't think that they got anything done. So then you also add these people that are more moderate, that have been here a long time, that are used to at least over some point of time getting into these uh, coalitions where they could actually compromise on legislation. That's really not happening very much anymore. So all of this is really adding up to frustration and causing many of these lawmakers to leave. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He is WTOP's Capitol Hill correspondent. And then you've got, I guess, to some it's a sideshow, to some it's an important matter. And that is the increase in intensity of looking at President Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, and this whole inquiry. And now, of course, you say, as you point out, the House is leaving for weeks now. So will that have any gravitational pull, I guess, when they do return? I think it'll have a huge gravitational pull because a lot of Democrats are totally frustrated by the fact that this impeachment inquiry, they just voted on it uh, last week to formally move it ahead. And, um, you know, Democrats have been saying this for a long time. The White House has been saying it, that there really is nothing specifically to tie President Biden to his son. Now, does his son have a lot of legal problems? Absolutely. Has he admitted to a ton of problems uh, from everything for paying for escort services to strippers, a lot of terrible things? And Democrats you know, don't want to talk about that, but they acknowledge, and and Hunter Biden himself has acknowledged these problems. But the fact that there is just basically a a search for more smoke and potentially fire with this impeachment inquiry is going to really, I think, royal things uh, from the just basic legislative standpoint of trying to get an agreement on some of the things that we just talked about, about basically getting the government to keep running, because I think it's going to cause some Democrats to dig in, and they're not going to be perhaps as willing to go across the aisle, as we've seen in the past year, where it literally did take uh, Democrats to join Republicans to get some of the legislation passed. So this is definitely going to be a big problem, both politically, obviously, for President Biden heading, heading into an election year, but I think it's also going to throw sand into the gears of the legislative process. Right. And they also have to deal with foreign policy questions, you know, aid to Israel and to Ukraine and those That's all up in limbo now, too, then. 
Right. And, you know, this is an issue that uh, immigration is something that they've been trying to figure out some kind of solution to these asylum issues and various issues related to immigration for literally 15 years. And now you see them trying to do this in a matter of days. Once again, does that sound familiar? Uh, now, there has been uh, pretty good progress on some of these discrete issues. Uh, Republicans basically want to change the expulsion authority. Uh, they want to bring back a form of what's known as Title 42, uh, basically to figure out a way to effectively shut down the, the border for a while. And there's a disagreement over what the level should be of how many people are coming in. But it's a it's a huge problem. And, you know, what's interesting is the majority of Republicans, particularly in the Senate, actually strongly support Ukraine aid as well as Israel aid. But because of this issue related to the border and the fact that Republicans feel this is the one time that they can get some leverage, it just has caused everything to to grind to a, not to a total halt, but uh, it is interesting that the Senate is back in session this week, but there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not any of this aid can actually get passed before the end of the year. And they did get, that is, both houses got the National Defense Authorization Act out of the way, so that's something they can feather their cap with. And then there's a couple of details, like the new Social Security Administrator that agency hasn't had a confirmed administrator, and very noticeably so, for a long time. Right. So we'll get uh, a vote on former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley, who looks like is going to get confirmed. And that will be another one of the things that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will do effectively to keep the Senate in session. They will you know, take up some nominations. They still have some loose ends here and there that are more kind of on the administrative side. So that will keep the Senate in session so that these negotiations uh, on the Republican and Democratic side, and now the White House is becoming more involved in these border issues. They want to just at least grind away, and, and they're hoping that they can reach some type of framework agreement. But as you well know, even if you get that agreement, then you have to put it into legislative text. You have to set up the cloture votes and all of that, and that takes time. And to be honest, a lot of Republicans in the House, and a lot of Democrats as well, actually have just said the House is not coming back, that they are not coming back until January. So even if there were some kind of political miracle and the Senate got to a point where there could be a vote on this, it's, again, really doubtful that anything could happen on it before the end of the year. So I think that issue is going to be pushed into the following year. So in the meantime, though, don't turn off the burner under the Navy bean soup <laughs> in the Dirksen cafeteria. Absolutely. Keep that going because we need some sustenance here. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thank Thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? 
Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, Makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.